I've spent most of my adult life asking the question, how do people heal in the aftermath of terrible experiences? The pursuit of that question, of course, has taken me to graduate school for years and years and years, helped to drive my framing of a master's degree in theology, and led me on learning adventures around the world to West Africa, to Central America, Nanjing, China, Germany, Poland, and a variety of communities within the United States. Of course, all of that training and experience helps to inform my work, but it's also helped me frame the way that I live, the way that I try to recover from hard or painful things that I encounter in the course of my very human life. So today's episode, I'm going to tell a story about an experience that I had recently testifying before a committee of the Minnesota State Senate. Because for me, the experience illustrates some key components of what I think go into the recipe for healing, namely truth-telling and the communalization of trauma or grief. And the reason that I am focusing on this for the podcast right now is, one, it, it just happened, so it was a significant experience for me, <laughs> a little bit selfish there, but the second is that so many of us are in the process of trying to recalibrate and reorient after what has been a time of upheaval, which for many of us has involved lots of different kinds of grief. Grief around the loss of life, but grief around also things like our, our plans, our businesses, our sense of financial security. So I'm having lots of conversations about grief with the entrepreneurs and founders that I work with. And of course, I'm having them in my personal life too. So hopefully this episode will kind of bridge the gap and provide some helpful insight and information about grief and recovery for you. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. If you have been listening to the podcast with any regularity, you are aware that in the course of the last few years, I've experienced a pretty significant amount of grief, both through the loss of my dad to cancer and the loss of my brother Dave to suicide. I talked about that latter loss in episode 220. So if you, you know, need a little bit of context, you can uh, revisit that one. There were, of course, a lot of things that contributed to my brother's death. It wasn't one moment or one experience, one illness, one heartbreak. It was 10,000 things, a lifetime of things. But when I think about his experience, there are a few significant points of failure. And one of those points of failure for him in his experience and in our experience as a family was in the, the gap that exists in the mental health sort of treatment world between leaving treatment and then reestablishing life somewhere. So my brother did a couple of rounds of treatment for substance abuse. He had an addiction to alcohol. And in both of those treatment settings, 
did quite well. Lots of support, lots of structure, lots of, you know, therapy, lots of activities. The day was sort of mapped out and planned. And when it came time to graduate, he didn't yet have the level of, you know, financial security where he could have gotten, you know, kind of an a normal apartment. <laughs> um, and so there's this in-between spot. They're called sober homes. And they are houses that are designated to provide kind of an interim place to live for people who are leaving treatment, but yet don't yet quite have the amount of structure and financial stability needed to live in a typical apartment. And sober homes are not treatment centers and they're not really apartments. So people don't have rights as a renter and they don't have rights as a patient. They're kind of this in-between la-la land. And for some, they're an amazing stopgap. They're very affordable. And allegedly, all of the members of the house are all working on sobriety together. So it can be a source of a lot of support. Unfortunately, they are also not regulated certainly in Minnesota, and there isn't national regulation that sort of guides and protects these homes, which means that they are vulnerable to abuse. They're vulnerable to basically becoming slums, where slumlords kind of trap people into staying in homes that are unsafe or not well kept because, frankly, they have nowhere else to go. So this was one of the more difficult parts of my brother's experience, largely because when you are leaving treatment, you are so vulnerable. You are kind of freshly undone and reconstructed. And then you are going out into the world really with wide eyes and a lot of internal vulnerability. We know from the larger psychological research that transitions these sort of shifts between living arrangements, between levels of structure and support are really, really difficult times for people, whether they are working through an addiction or whether they are recovering from any kind of physical or mental illness. So this is a really important part of the process to get right. We can create amazing treatment centers for people where they heal and recover, but unless they are supported in their transition back into kind of the real world, all of that great treatment work gets undone. And that's one of the things that happened to Dave. He left treatment and he found his sober house to be a super scary, uncomfortable place. Things were broken. The house was trashed and the people that he was living with seemed very unsafe to him. He didn't want to keep his cash or his guitar there. He didn't feel protected. And so there was this gap where there wasn't really any place to go, but he sure as hell didn't want to stay in the house. So he decided to leave Minneapolis where he had been undergoing treatment and go to Montana where he'd been living before. And I think that change was a lot for him. It was too much too soon. So he died three weeks after leaving treatment, which is absolutely not how that should go. From both a, a clinical perspective and a, and a sister's perspective, there needed to be a little bit more support to help him to be really successful in his sobriety. So in the aftermath of this story, part of, I think, what I've done in my grief is try to think about what could be done so that this doesn't happen again to another family, or at least to minimize the likelihood that it would happen again to another family. NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and they have chapters in every state. And 
basically they raise awareness. They teach legislatures around about mental health issues and they try to support legislation and policies that make treatment accessibility and basic dignity possible for people who are living with addiction or mental illness. So I started working with NAMI in Minnesota on bills that support sober house reform. And the first bill that the legislature in Minnesota was reviewing was simply a a research study to try to assess how many sober homes there are in Minnesota, what their quality is, how much turnover they have, how many beds there are. These basic things aren't known about these businesses which I find, frankly, kind of outlandish because these are quote-unquote businesses that serve extraordinarily vulnerable people. So as part of the process of supporting this legislation, I have now three times gone before various legislative bodies, committees, and talked about my family's experience and advocated for more research and hopefully eventually more oversight to help improve the sober home situation in the state. Last week was a hearing in the committee that oversees finances for health and human services. And so I testified by Zoom, read my statement, and talked about uh, Dave's story. As I said, I've done this a few times before, and it is actually kind of a terrible experience. I would not recommend it. It's terrible because it feels very, very vulnerable when you are in a very formal situation. So I imagine it's sort of like accidentally wearing a swimsuit to like a highly professional event. It's a committee of people who are reviewing minutes and talking about procedural addendums. And here I am telling this like very painful, vulnerable story about my family. And I hate it. I hate how raw and on display it feels. But I keep doing it because I I do think it's important. I think that it isn't until legislators hear about these kinds of stories that they might be moved to change some of these policies. But this time last week, this third occasion of testifying felt really different. As I was speaking, the chair of the committee, senator named Jim Abler, he took off his glasses because he was starting to cry. He listened to me tell the story And he was clearly quite moved and affected. He paused and he thanked me for my testimony. He communicated a commitment to see this bill passed and to conduct this research so that the leaders of the state can have a better sense of what's happening with sober houses and what the complaints are and concerns are. And then he addressed me. And I'm reading from the transcript here. He said, yeah, so I just don't want any more stories like this one. You thought it would be all right because somebody was watching. And I think it is my job. I think it is this committee's job. And I think we've got a gap here in our system. There needs to be a sober person's bill of rights or something that they could expect certain things to be true. This is a good bill and it's our responsibility. It is our responsibility to make sure that there is some oversight. And a study is just a small step in the right direction. So thank you, and I think I'm going to quit there while I can still talk, Um, because I just have to say that I'm grieved, and I'm angry, and I'm challenged. I'm committed to something coming out of this for whatever part I have, and it's time to get rid of the people who are not worthy providers. They're not going to get any more money from me, meaning the state. We're going to hold our members to a strict set of standards. I just don't need any more sisters to show up here. 
So as he's saying all of this, I'm weeping, of course, and he's teary. And, you know, I don't know if it comes across in my reading of the transcript, but it was extraordinarily powerful for me to be able to talk about um, Dave's experience, my experience, and for him to say, not only I hear you and I'm affected by you, but to acknowledge that it should have been different and to take some ounce of responsibility. Of course, he is not responsible, not directly, not humanly, but the state was responsible for that house. The state was responsible for that treatment process. And he acknowledged that. And he expressed what I felt in the moment was a very sincere desire to do differently. And it was really powerful for me to have that interaction with him. So outside of the uniqueness of my own experience, what was really important about this exchange from a psychological perspective is the the ability to tell the truth, right? The ability to say, these are the things that happened. These are the things that went wrong. This is what my brother did. This is what he was offered. This is what happened. And this was the ultimate outcome, that he died. And all around the world, societies have processes like this that are truth-telling events. So you might think of South Africa and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where people who lost loved ones or who suffered at the hands of apartheid were offered an audience. They were offered the ability to come out into some public organized venue and talk about their experiences, often in the presence of the perpetrators. Guatemala has gone through a similar process. Various agencies within Guatemala have created space for the Nunca Mas moment or Nunca Mas movement where families of victims of the genocide are offered the ability to tell stories and gain information about how and where and when their loved ones died. I even think about the experience last spring in Minneapolis in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. One of the rallying cries of protesters was say his name, speak his name, personalize it, make it a story, make it human. So that expression, that truth telling is in many ways the foundational process of therapy. It is extraordinarily helpful for us as humans to have a mechanism by which we can express the stories that have shaped us, where we're holding to account those who maybe participated in wrongdoing, or maybe the truth-telling just happens within the confines of a therapy room or a family or a memorial service. But the ability to speak about the most difficult experiences that have shaped us is an important part of healing. It gets it out of the the amygdala, the fear-based center of our brain, and puts it into the prefrontal cortex where we can access it with language, which co- with conversation, and hopefully eventually with connection. So the second piece of this is the communalization of the experience. It's the ability to tell the story, but also to put the story into a group of people who then hold it together. I'd never met this senator before. I had no personal connection with him and nor he to me. But for a few brief moments, we held together this event that occurred in my life that has implications for other lives. And we were participating in it together. From a psychological perspective means that I don't hold it alone anymore. It's not an easy process. 
But for people who've experienced wrongdoing and then had the chance to testify in court or in some way tell their stories, it can be an incredibly important part of healing. And I think that brings me to where we are now today, that many of us have lost things, maybe not as dramatically as a sibling or a parent, or maybe, but all of us have lost plans, a sense of certainty, a sense of stability. Many of us have lost team members or clients, financial security. None of us, certainly least of all me, we don't want to linger in that loss forever. We don't want that to be the only or the most important story about us. We want to move on. We want to rebuild. We want to keep moving and get going. I get it. I Believe me, I live there. But without the experience of being able to tell the truth about what's lost and being able to put it into some shared space, I think healing is pretty difficult. So whether that's a mastermind, whether a therapist, whether a conference talk, whatever it looks like for you to find safe and supportive places to talk about the things that have hurt you so that you can not just, you know, shove your burdens onto other people, but recognize your participation and their participation in the larger story of humanity, including the grief and loss and painful parts of it. I know as leaders, it can be really hard to feel like that's important. You know, it seems much easier to just keep going. But I think then we, we sort of run the risk of accumulating these low-grade mental injuries when we've suffered through difficult experiences but not been able to talk about it, we, we never sort of clean out the wound. We never have a space for it to heal. And we never get to tell the truth about what we've lived through and what we've risen from when we don't have a safe space to talk about it. So I keep talking about safe spaces. I will say that I don't think that the halls of the Senate chamber are particularly safe spaces. So I'm grateful that I've had other places where I've been able to process a lot of this loss without having to do it in public in this way. But I'm grateful for the chance to have been heard. I'm grateful that I was able to say my brother's name in the Hall of Congress, and I've done it several times now, and I'll do it over and over, because he was denied the dignity of a safe place to heal. It was beyond the scope of what Rob and I or what I could provide for him, and that shouldn't have been the story. So the best case scenario is that I can now give him the dignity of saying his name and letting his story be known, hopefully so that this cycle doesn't repeat itself. But I don't have the power to do that in the vacuum of my own life. I only have the power to do that if I step out of my own experience and become an advocate, become someone who's willing to talk and ask and argue and fight sometimes to create the world that I think should exist. I am not deeply optimistic about politics or political processes, but I am pretty optimistic about humans. And because I had that human connection with that senator, I do believe him. I believe that he'll support this cause, and I believe that he'll support the bill. Not because he read my story somewhere, but because he looked in my eyes. I hope that this story serves you in some way today, whether it reminds you to listen with your heart as well as your mind, or whether it reminds you of the stories that you hold that maybe need a little bit of life-giving, a little bit of space to be shared. 
being human is messy, <laughs> much harder than I expected. But I'm grateful for the for the courage and for the wisdom and the open-heartedness that I'm encountering along the way. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.